Hi guys, uh, welcome to Football 360, one to one, we're just about to do an interview with Michael Beale. Michael is a guy who most people who are familiar with coaching development uh, in this day and age will, will, will recognise his name. Um, he has worked with some of the biggest names in the game in terms of coaches and managers, um, in terms of players and in terms of clubs. Um, his experience uh, is, is really impressive, his journey is really impressive. Um, but I'd rather not focus on the names and drop drop them all in there uh, too too much. Quite simply, because I think what's even more impressive is the way that um, he speaks about the game. He's uh, he's incredibly knowledgeable, incredibly passionate, um, and uh, has a lot of experience at lots of different levels of the game. So he's very knowledgeable about. Um, not just the elite um, first team level of the game, but also the development processes for young footballers to try and get to that elite stage. Um, and and on top of that, he, he, he's just a, he's from a generation that that still remembers um, the game in I guess the way that I remember the game. And so there's some quite kind of humble um, working class kind of uh, football football values about the guy that I, I admire immensely. But um, I think. You're going to enjoy listening to this. I think you're going to learn something, and, and I think you're going to be inspired. I can I can say that there's probably I can count on one hand um, the number of people who in the game who I actively go out to try and consume every bit of information that they put out there, and he's one of them. Quite simply because I think he's a, he's a brilliant football mind, um, a very humble, um, personable guy, uh, and I'm I'm incredibly excited to be doing the interview um, and I hope that uh, you understand why when you've uh, listened to the next hour or so. Uh, so thanks for tuning in, uh, I hope you enjoy it. Good morning, welcome everyone to uh, Football 360 One to One. I'm delighted to be joined by Michael Beale, first team coach at Rangers this morning. Um, very lucky to have uh, have Michael on, uh, on what is international break at the moment. Um, He's a guy who started putting out cones in his own words at, uh, with the under sixes at Chelsea, has worked for some of the biggest football clubs in the world um, and a guy who uh, I respect immensely. I'm really looking forward to speaking to. So um, Mick, thanks a lot for joining us today. Brilliant. Thanks, Kev. I really appreciate coming on, mate. Thank you, mate. Thank you. Me too. Okay. Um, so I think what I, what I want to do, first of all, is, is just ask you four questions to, to get warmed up. Um, this is this is uh, yeah this is something that I'm going to do on every on every interview that I do. So to start off with, um, the uh, the greatest team ever in your opinion? Uh, there's a few, mate. I would say I would say Brazil '70, Brazil '82, the whole yeah. team of Cruyff, Xavi and Iniesta's team at Barcelona that lovely period there. Yeah, a personal favourite would be Mourinho's first team at Chelsea as a as a young Chelsea fan when they won yeah. the league. That was a special time. Liverpool, Dalglish, and Rush. There's a few. There's a, there's uh, Saki's team at AC Milan with the Dutch guys together. There's a few teams that sort of like that take you through periods of football that excite you. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny actually. Quite a few of those examples are from that those formative years. You were similar age to me, I think, and um, my memories are crystal clear of football in the 80s, for example, and not so not so good through the 90s and, and in the last decade or two. In terms of teams, I couldn't call them out as clearly as the ones from an earlier time. So that's interesting. Some great teams in there. Um, okay, favourite player? Iron Robin. 
Yeah, I won't waver on that. Uh, there's a lot of players that I really respect and love. I think there's there's more unique players, but when I watched him um, as a young player, when he first came to Chelsea, I was managed to watch train a couple of times. And as a Chelsea fan at the time, he was the one that got you off your seat. I love wide players. It's my passion. Uh, I read his Football Tribune interview last year or the year before, and he said about what would he say to his younger self about practising that, yeah. dropping the right shoulder and coming inside on the left foot. And I'm fascinated by players who have an element of their game that's very um, obvious for everyone, but people still can't stop it. And he's certainly yeah. in that category. And uh, I find myself defending him at times, but now his career's uh, over, I think we have to say like, what a wonderful football player that is, like a proper throwback. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think it'd be interesting for a lot of coaches who, who watch this with interest um, and reflect on the fact that you've called out a player there who's um, one of the most wonderful players I've ever seen. Um, they might they might think think about that next time they're on the on the training pitch and uh, asking players to work on both feet. I don't know. It's an interesting one that we might come back to. Um, great example. Okay, and uh, the third question uh, might be might be one you've not had before. Uh, you have a game where it's, it's the ultimate cup final. Um, one game, winner takes all, best players in the world, um, and you need to pick a manager to, to get a result in that game. Who do you go for, past or present? Uh, my heart is telling me um, Ancelotti because he's my favourite, and my head is telling me Mourinho from what I know and what I've seen that in the one-off game, he's... Um, he's capable of is is extreme i think obviously guardiola and klopp although klopp in the cup finals he's changing that dynasty now in the cup finals he's had some yeah. issues the last few but um guardiola Cruyff. but no if i have to pick one to win one game jose to mourinho. win one game yeah jose mourinho jose mourinho great okay popular one i reckon that one uh, okay and finally a little known fact about michael beale uh Useless at DIY, terrible cook outside of football, probably, and bringing in some finance to our house probably don't help my wife at all. <laughs> I think my wife would probably say very similar about me. So great stuff. Okay, so let, let's get into it a little bit. Um, thanks for those. Um, I want to start by sort of prefacing the whole conversation in some respects. Um, we might talk about everything from the under sixes through to the senior side of things, and I find it fascinating that you've. You've, worked, you've done so much wonderful work with young players, clearly very passionate about the development of young players, um, and yet you're now working in the first team environment. And, and to quote you, uh, a fairly recent quote, you said that you were underwhelmed by what you see at first team level. And I think I knew exactly what you meant, um, but I kind of want to throw that across to you and and say, how do you feel about that? that? Because it's almost like, uh, my assumption is that someone who's worked with such elite young players and in, in such elite environments um, might have some of those, some of their methods, some of their beliefs, some of their philosophies slightly compromised by the need to get results at first team level. Where compromise, in my experience, uh, um, is is almost inevitable to some degree. It's how I guess how maybe how you limit that compromise when you're looking to get results. Yeah, I think I love the journey that you go on with young players and the relationships that you have with them. So you miss that a yeah. little bit first in football. Since we've yeah. sort of lowered the age group of our team at Rangers, I feel like I'm going on journeys again, which is which is fantastic. Um, Brilliant. I also think that at first team, 
um, the schedule and the pressure of results can sometimes affect creativity. So it's a really important message to myself. If I believe that, how am I still creative in that first team setting? Yeah. I remember, um, you know, just sort of, I remember going back to being a Chelsea under nines, tens coach and Neil Barth, the academy manager, making a point that, you know, if we want to become better in our philosophy and we want people to see the bigger picture of our philosophy, i.e. the guys working at the bottom, why their work was important, we should flip it on its head and move them to the top and let them work with the older age groups just for a session or for a couple of days just to see what was happening up there. Yeah. And at the time, uh, I misinterpreted it, probably took it the wrong way as if oh, I know what, I know what's needed, but I think I used the same thing at Liverpool under 23s where I invited coaches up uh, to be with us two days before the game and then on game day. And just to look at why the ball was turned over, what the coaches would criticise about the players. And it was often technique or technical deficiencies or decision making or awareness on the pitch. Uh, you know, when you're a youth coach, it's always the most awkward day ever when one of your young players makes its debut. Other than the parents of the player, it's you. Because you'll be in the stadium and you think, oh, I hope that don't fall on his left foot or I hope it don't get caught at the far post with a header or I hope the ball don't get switched and he gets that 1v1 defending against Eden Hazard, for example. Uh, yeah. All of them little things. And that sort of tells you the work that maybe you wanted to do beforehand. So I just find that, you know, that you're on a journey with young players and you're not willing to allow them to play with limitations. So if you're working with a young player, um, you're trying to make them more smoother in their techniques, their decision making, their awareness, their athleticism. You're trying to make everything, you're maximising everything in order to, to give them a chance to be a professional player. So you're not allowing limitations in their game. And I think sometimes at first team football, you're dealing with a player who maybe has some limitations and you're trying to hide them or you're trying to shuffle the pack to, to make the, the, the best use of strengths, which you do at every age. But I find at first team level, in the real world, not in the world of Man City, Liverpool, Barcelona, Real Madrid, in the real world of first team football, there's too many um, anchors put in the game that, that, that makes it... I want people at the top end of the game to be really creative. And I think then that's why Guardiola gets such a, um, you know, such a huge reputation. Of course, he's fantastic, but we, we believe he's fantastic because of his ideas. We're, we're, we're sort of drawn into his fantastic ideas and, 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 and how free he allows his players, presumably, to be. Because I think his team are probably the most organised team outside of clops in world football. I think they're super drilled, super organised. But within that organisation, within that structure, you allow for creativity. And I think the biggest thing I would say, Kev, I'm answering this question in a really long way, but the biggest thing I would say is that football's about feeling and relationships. And, you know, it's how the players feel when they get on the pitch, the relationship you have with them, the clarity you give them, the freedom you give them. Yeah. And therefore, uh, I miss the journeys that you go on. But I still plan the sessions like that. I plan the sessions around uh, who's in the session, what do they need, specifically what does the individuals need, but would I play in this session? So that doesn't mean I always do finishing and, and always do the fun stuff. It means that I have to think about how I'm putting this across, how I'm selling it, what's the story behind the session, how am I scene setting? And that's the biggest part of my job each day. I, I, I wouldn't, you know, I never ever plan a session which is just occupational therapy. I just go out and do something for the fun of doing it, or the the word fun's probably wrong, just for the to kill time. Yeah. 
yeah. feeling yeah. behind what we're doing and the relationship I have with the people fuels the session. So it's often the conversations beforehand or that are going on around it uh, with yourself. Say if you was a player for me, there would be something in the session for you. It, the sessions will always be about you because it will be about our style and how you fit into it and how we can make you better. So you understanding that, then when you come into the session, I think you come into it in a better place. Yeah, okay. I mean, from that, I guess I I have a view that um, a lot of the stuff that I guess I've observed over the years and the, the anecdotal stuff that people share with me and, and their views, there are a lot of coaches working at first team level who do get into that. There's a difference between good repetition and and going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And the, I guess the way I read your and, and the advice for me as, as, an, as, as a, as a young-ish coach is um, uh, you've got to keep being creative and planning your sessions uh, in a way that, you know, you don't ever get comfortable yourself. You ask players not to, not to get comfortable. But, um, and I, I guess I see a lot of coaches, the behaviour of coaches at the top level now they're becoming less alpha male and more about those relationships you're talking about there. So I do see a cultural shift there, but it's interesting to see, you know, I think you're probably one of the people who people would look to, for, you know, to, to be, a, I guess, a trailblazer in that respect. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit now, but I guess my point is uh, it's, it's, it'll be interesting to see as you progress through your career, um, how many more people like you fill those positions. Yeah, I think that the, um, you know, when you're going through the youth youth development, you're on a journey with these players and the players really listen to everything you say because yeah. they, they believe if they don't, they might not make it. So it's before they know, if you know what I mean, whether they're going to make it or not. So they, they're really open to everything you say. And I think it's important then you're not a dictator and that you're a guide. So you work next to them and you're guiding them. And I'm really pushing this you versus yourself. And I must, yeah. at the right time, I must find time to write about it more because I think it's the key to you know, the, where we're going on our journeys as coaches with young players. When you get to first team level, I think it's, you're still a guide, but it's more about collaboration. You know, you're, you're sending a message out there and it's a suggestion and the players either take the bait or they, they believe in your suggestion and they move with it. Um, and as a, as a first team coach, you'll need a few results maybe to go your way or a few big things that you suggest to come off to get that yeah. They won't just take it. But also then players are at the top level earning a lot of money. So when you suggest that they work on something, they're probably, um, some of them will, t will naturally take that on because they're living this you versus yourself. That's why they're where they are. And others will feel, well, I'm in a really com com comfortable position, Mick. I'm earning good money, living in a lovely house, got a lovely family. And then it comes down to the will and the desire of the player. Yeah, You can work, say, a mid-level Premier League club or a championship club and have a player in your squad who is more than capable of playing for a Champions League team or a top six team, physically, technically. Yeah. Why don't they? And it's because of that. It's because of the drive, the inner drive they have. So I think first teams are much more about collaboration. I think we can take a lot of the good work we do in youth development around relationships into first team because I think players are crying out for that now. Yeah. You know, I think these young players that, for example, who played for England last night that are now in first team, they've only ever known that way. So I think some of the fantastic work we're doing at youth development around individual work, around 
goal setting with players around spending more time on the personal relationship. I think then players need that when they go into first team now because they've been used to it through the academy system. Yeah, I think that so there's a change in generations and there's a change in what's needed, I believe, at first team level. Now, whether that has to be the main manager or the manager has to have that in his staff, I think the older generation managers, the ones that are very, very smart, will have some younger generation coaches around them who understand these young players. Um, yeah. But I definitely think that the game's changing and evolving as coaches and what's needed at first team level now in terms of how you manage relationships and what was needed in the past might be slightly different, in my opinion, that is. Yeah, yeah. Because it, what, what's two, two coaches that spring to mind there, first team managers, Pep and Tony Pulis, two two obviously different on the on the spectrum in terms of the, their, their approach, their style and the way that their teams play. But my understanding is, and, and you see it, Pep will go out on the training ground and he will coach players on body shape and angle that much opening their, opening their body with that, that much more would open up the pitch as an example. You see him literally doing it. Now, some people will accuse him of doing it for show, but I, I interpret it that he's not afraid to go in there and coach the best players in the world and challenge them. And, and, and similarly, I also believe that Tony Pulis would work in a similar way, that he would go out there and he would literally drag players from three yards away into an area. He might be doing some tactical, some shape work on a Friday or whatever, but actually pushing those players around, the, the, the elite players in the game and saying, you can be better at what you do. It, it's, it's interesting that that's the first thing that, that, that comes to mind when, when yeah. um, you mentioned that. And is it going to, is it, you know, are you now dealing with a really difficult period of time when you've got some entitled players and some young players like the, the England players you're talking about last night as an example, and you've got to deal with the mix. It might be easier because everyone will be the same as the players you're describing. Yeah, I think that the, the better the player you have, the more opinion that you might have on the game. So therefore you have to be very good at collaborating and you have yeah. to be very strong in your vision. My advice to any coaches, and listen, I'm young, I'm on this journey and I'm making as many mistakes as uh, as good decisions as as I go, but my, my advice would be you'll get hired um, by your values and what you stand for and what you coach and, and how your teams play. You'll get hired for the job that fits that. For example, like Guardiola will always get hired for what Guardiola does and Pulis will always get hired for the fantastic work he does. And that's two different types of football completely. But there's lots yeah. of different teams and clubs that believe in different things and need different yeah. things. So therefore, as you're coming through as a coach, understand what it is that you believe in, that what your passion is, because there's always 25 eyes on you every day when you go into training, when you're a first team coach, a youth coach, whatever age group you work with, there's 25 eyes on you. Outside of that, there's an extension of the fans, the board, and everyone else looking at you. And I think you have to, people have to smell it off of you that you really believe in the direction you're taking the team and you really believe in what you're coaching yeah. and what you're putting across and you're not winging it. And I think that some, both the managers that you, that you spoke about, they really believe in their method and therefore they're able to execute it and put it across to players in a really effective way. And yeah. Tony Pulis can get the fantastic results he got in the style of football that, that he uses. And Guardiola gets what he gets and, and, and all the accolades that he deserves off the back of it as well. But they both really smell and believe in what they're putting across to their players. And yeah. I think that's really key. And I think that, you know, if you've got any coaches working in youth football, you have to have your youth hat on. 
you can't say, right, I'm working at youth level to become a first team coach. So therefore, I coach youth team players like I'm coaching the first team for an FA Cup third round tie. No, that cannot happen. When you're working with young players, you put the youth hat on. But while you're doing that, you should be looking, exploring and seeing the things that are going to stick if you get to the top end. But like I keep saying to people, it's like just be an expert in or try to be as, as close to an expert as you can in in uh, relationships and how you can uh, impact someone's enjoyment of the game and their own clarity, identity of playing the game. Because there's so many more jobs at youth level and so few jobs at first team. And, and I think that should be the base of anyone. If you can be a developer, take the word youth off of it. Yeah. You can be a developer, then you can work at any age group. Love that. I think I think the word youth and development has no relationship whatsoever. You're either a developer, you know how to develop people, you believe in developing, you believe in further improvement, and and you can work at any level, or you don't. Love that. I love that. I, I, I don't I don't know whether that's something that, that's a soundbite you've prepared before, if it's just 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 come out there, but it's it, it really sticks with me. It really resonates with me. It's a, it's a great answer. Um, okay, that's some really good insight into into the the the, the, the two. Um, the two opposite ends of the scale, I guess, or, the, or, the, or as you just said, actually, they're not opposite ends of the scale, the same thing, but the, the different scenarios. Um, I want to go into a little bit about um, cultures. I'm really interested um, in the, the journey that you've had, particularly going out to Sao Paulo and working in Brazil um, with your family, obviously, and, and having to deal with that. But please, can you share a little bit about um, the major differences between um, what you knew before you went out to Brazil, what you know now, um, and also how that's then been developed with, with the journey to Liverpool and, and now in Scotland. I'm really interested to find out what you think are the major differences between the, the, the countries you've worked in. I have to say, like, um, I miss Brazil. I really miss it. I miss the experience. I wish that I hadn't of left in the moment that I left. Yeah. Possibly a few days later, I'd have been forced to leave anyway because they, they changed the manager three or four days later. But that was probably all combined with myself leaving as well. Yeah. So I, I regret that I made the decision at the time I did. Um, obviously, at the time, I'd come through two clubs, Chelsea and Liverpool, who really believe in development and the journey. And I think when I made that quote about being underwhelmed by first-team football, it might have been around the time I come home from Brazil because... I believed in the project for Sao Paulo. So I was only going to leave Liverpool for something that was amazing. I've always wanted to work abroad. It's still my ambition um, to, to go and work outside the UK in the future. So I wanted to learn the second language. I wanted to learn more about cultures, which I'll come back on. So, I, you know, like the passion of behind going, I wanted to be part of a project. And I really believed in the project. And we got sold a few lies and players got sold for financial reasons. But over time, at the time, you just decide, well, I need to leave. So I'm going to resign because I don't believe in what we're doing. don't know where we're going. And I think that was because I'd always been in clubs in the two clubs previous that had a real um, philosophy on youth development and where we were taking players. We had a real belief in what we were doing. They were different, but there was a real belief in what you were doing and, and, and yeah. that was all part of the journey. So when you get to Sao Paulo and you lose 10 or 12 first-team players in in the space of like 25, 26 games, and you're not expecting to lose them, I could not work in that scenario. Now, a bit of experience tells me that sometimes that happens at first team level. 
Uh, I so Brazil, but I miss it. I miss the journeys that I had, the conversations I had. I always just, think that, just on that. Sorry, sorry to cut across you. Just on that, you you lost the players for I believe financial reasons because that was the that's the way that they work out there. Yeah, that they're, they're moving them on for whatever transfer fee they can get. But did that not give you an opportunity to continue to develop the next level, which to me feels like it would suit you? Yeah, when we first went, we brought eight players from the under twenties across to join our squad. Yeah. Um, which was fantastic. And we, you know, one of them players is like Militao, who went to Porto, has now gone to Real Madrid for 50 million. He was one of the players. We lost a boy called David Neres, who's obviously playing now in Ajax. We lost him before we even got a chance to work with him. We lost players. Okay. We lost two players to Lille. Basically, we set our team up to be um, much more energ energetic than normal Brazilian teams. We tried to bring some European elements into uh, South American football, i.e., I high pressing, and we also tried to play. Uh, free at the back and rotate systems a little bit, which was we, but we relied on speed and one v one ability. And it just when you yeah. build a team, you can't lose certain things. And the amount of players that we lost, um, and the amount of turnover of players in general, like there was like probably a thirty-five player swing in the in the period of four and a half five months. So we wasn't building wow. anyone. We were literally playing every three days. And we were going from pillar to post. And when there was international um, international breaks, the Brazilian league just runs through it. So you might lose your best four players to an international break and you just run through it. The, the whole experience was fantastic. Like we worked with some really, really good young players and some that are now playing in Europe. And I'm really excited on their journeys to see where they're going. Um, you know, to see Militao, who we gave a debut to, to move to Porto and become the best player in Portugal and then to go for 50 million to Real Madrid. You know, they're experiences that change you. In terms of general football, I felt after seven months, I'd learned from Brazil what I needed to learn. The questions I'd had from childhood about Brazilian players and just South American cultures in general. So my idea when I was under 23s coach at Liverpool was it was all about relationships. I was really kicking on with relationships, about spending more time with the players off the pitch, to understand them, to really go on their journey with them to the next level. So I'd worked with a lot of players from European nations and I'd been lucky to work with a couple of the first team players at Liverpool that were South American, but not close enough. So the chance to go to Brazil to learn a second language, my first time at first team football, a new championship, to be uh, an Englishman working in South America. But then within that team, there was Lugano, who was the captain of Uruguay um, for many years, had played in Europe, right. famous. There was uh, Christian Cueva, who, who is an international. There was Lucas Prato, who's a centre-forward for Argentina, who was playing with Messi at the time. So it wasn't just Brazilian. But it was a chance to immerse myself in a different culture to see if I can gain their respect. And I want to share something now because I'm hoping that, you know, the, the majority of your listeners are, are, are coaches that are intrigued. That's why they're listening to a, a podcast or a, or, or a video like this now. Before I went to Brazil... Um, when I worked with first team players, when I went across from the academy in Liverpool to Melwood and under Brendan Rodgers and then under Klopp, if I was ever invited over to work and be around it, I wouldn't yeah. say I was in awe of the first team players, but I wasn't the same coach as I was with the 23s. And that may be because I was, the players had a status and I was aware of their status. And as a young coach, you know, if you have Steven Gerrard in your session or you have Coutinho or Suarez or Balotelli or Firmino, any of these guys, you felt like you was facilitating the session. But I didn't actually feel I was in control of it like I was with the younger players. And that yeah. was a real thing I had to overcome. 
when I went to Brazil and um, I didn't really know the language very well, I become much more um, obsessed with watching people and the message I was putting across. I was focusing so much on the message I was putting across that it knocked the facade, just literally disappeared of that. I was yeah. working with these people that are internationals and I wasn't. And once I've overcome that, I've now come home and, and I'm, I, I've gone to another level as a coach. So when people ask me, what did I get from Brazil? I've never shared that in a public setting before, but it's just in my reflections, it's come to me as time go on, these reflections come to you. And that's the biggest thing that Brazil gave me. It sort of, it cut the shrink wrap really of, what, of, of being a youth coach to being a first team coach. It's sort of uh, the experience. And sometimes that happens when you're a young coach, you know, and you, you move up the age group, something just happens, a day happens that cuts the shrink wrap and now you have arrived, if you like, or you're more comfortable. And Brazil gave me that. And it's amazing. Right. That came because I was obsessed in, obviously, because I didn't speak the language, it just sort of cut that that barrier a lot more. And uh, so I have to say... So, so you gave, it, it gave you the fast track to have that confidence to work at first team level and cut yeah. away all, the, all the, the, the vulnerabilities that you, you felt you had. Yeah, it made me focus on my skills as a coach much more. And obviously, I was getting the message across and, and obviously learning the language and how I was going to communicate to certain players. So I had to write the session plan out in Portuguese and I had to write, instead of writing the session plan out in terms of rules of practices and size of areas and time, I wrote out, you know, the statements I wanted to make about body yeah. shape, statements I wanted to make about why we were doing it and, and ultimately which players I wanted to get buy-in for. So it just, I was so focused on that, it sort of broke that. And that's me reflecting over time as a coach, which I think you have to do. But I, I wanted to share that because I think that is a big thing that I haven't shared before. It, it, it makes sense to me. I mean, I've obviously had some experience of it working over here in Spain. Um, but thanks for sharing that because obviously the, the context, I think, for, you know, there's probably young coaches out there who are thinking about what, what is the benefit of going abroad. Um, and that in itself obviously gives gives um, you know will give them some inspiration. But great, thanks for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, just anything else on on culture? I mean, I, I, what I'm quite interested in also is uh, I know Liverpool is is kind of like a, it's not where you're from, but it, it feels like a, a special place for you. Um, you've gone to another pretty special place, a real hotbed of football. Um, how are you comparing the two? How's that? How's that that working in terms of your, how it translates to your your job and and you know the the impact of the the environment around you on on your day to day work? Yeah, I think like when you when you're in London and you work with such a wide wide diversity of people and also London being so big, and there's a culture in London. I think the the young players in London are quite self confident, um, yeah. you know, and they don't they're not lap dogs, the London players, especially the inner London players, they're not lap dogs. You know, when you come into the session, you have to buy their trust, you have to work with them, I think. And I'm not trying to generalise here. So that's something that you have to have in London. I think you can be an under-10s coach at Chelsea and the job at under-10s coach at Liverpool is completely different. Wow, OK. And I'll keep going on the culture side, but just in terms of the diversity of the players you have in London and what's needed there, and then the the lack of diversity at Liverpool when I first went and therefore the amount of patience that you needed and skills that you needed to have as a coach in terms of your vision, where they might go. But the patience, because you imagine in London with the diversity, you have a lot of different shapes and sizes. There's a lot more people moving into the area. So your group will naturally evolve over time. 
where if you go to Liverpool, generally not many people move to the north of England unless, you know, it's for work. But you're not talking about the sheer amount of people in London. It's not as diverse. So you have one type of player. And generally, they're the smaller, more technical Scouse players compared to the London where you have a real wide variety and mix. So therefore, you have to be a different type of coach. Also, okay. you have to understand the region and the people and what they demand. And that's different between London and the North. And I think that the grit and the hard work are lovely traits for young players to have, but they have yeah. natural in the Northwest. The creativity and the flamboyance and the freedom that, play, that, that young boys have in London is a lovely thing to have. But do they buy into the grit and the hard work? So the two ends of the country was, was huge in terms of that. Yeah. It made me straight away... 100% better coach because, wow, I had these two experiences. And it challenged me. It really challenged yeah. me. But the the culture in the Northwest, I loved. It's why I call home now. And I think Liverpool's my football home. I've said that before. I see yeah. real similarities here in Glasgow as well. Real similarities. Okay. Um, I think the two clubs in Glasgow are fantastic clubs, as big as any of the ones in England. And, um, and you see it week in, week out. But also... You know the young players in them clubs as well they just miss out a little bit on the strength of youth development in england in terms of the games program but there's really good players in both clubs going across to brazil but prior to going across to brazil and working at chelsea and then working at, at liverpool i'd learned something about young players from different countries how they see the game differently and would be frustrated in training or couldn't quite understand what we saw in training and this thing about train the way you play and everything being at a maximum intensity, I always found that foreign players sort of, they rehearsed a lot more. So I always think, why should you train the way you play? Because then you'll only play how you played last week. I think you should train to improve. If that means training with intensity, but I also think there's got to be times where you allow players to rehearse and practice something that really intrigues them. Yeah. Um, just like when they're kids, you know, so think when senior players, you know, I don't think we're going to teach... Uh, Lionel Messi, the next fake move. I don't think any manager is going to do that. I think Lionel Messi does that. I think that players do that. Neymar, some of the magical things Neymar does. Or like yeah. someone in the Premier League now, someone like Callum Hudson-Odoi at Chelsea who's very exciting. I think that that's Callum playing with the ball. I don't think coach. I think coaches have put some ideas in, but it's the sheer practice that the boy does. So if boys are not practicing now, when do you give them a chance to rehearse? And you should train to improve, not train how you play. Train to yeah. improve. I think that's massive. When I've gone across to South America, I was looking for that even more, really, in terms of culture. Now, in South America, there's a big obsession with number 10s, um, and there's a big obsession with not making a backward substitution, i.e. you can be winning 3-0, but why would you take off an attacker? It's always okay. about scoring goals and throwing more attackers on the pitch. That's what my I observed in Brazil. And also in Brazil, technique is a given. Technique is a given. If you don't have technique, you cannot play the game. Where in the UK, I think what we've, we've tended to do is physically, if you can get by and you're robust, you can have technical frailties, but we'll hide them. And in Brazil, what I found is no technique's almost like a given. It's, it's almost like a personal pride of playing the game. So I learned things like that on culture. I learned things, you know, some things, you know, culture's culture and then bad things without me swearing. Bad things are bad, but culture's culture. So there's some things you have to learn. Like in, in Brazil, the diet's very different. The lifestyle yeah. is different. You're outside. So they would tend to have ice cream on the menu in every meal. 
they would tend to have bolas simpler, so like simple sponge cakes, fruit cakes in every meal. They would tend to have that, but their general diet of lean meat, salad, feijoada, the, you know, the, it was very different. So that's different to giving ice cream to a boy from Yorkshire that's going home, and going home, not having the foot count every day because they're going home indoors because of the weather or because they're not allowed to go out or whatever. They don't have the outdoor lifestyle. And then that boy's having something different for his tea, which means you can't have the ice cream on top. So you have to understand culture's culture. And that was the same, I was lucky enough, because I challenged the ice cream thing, which is such a small story because we're talking about football, but I challenged it because, as I said, culture's culture. What can you see in the culture that you think, oh, that's good? And what do you see in the culture you say, that's bad, they need to improve? And the ice cream thing was one thing that I, I wanted to challenge around the meals. But the Brazilian national team do the same. So you'd have Brazilian players playing in Europe that would go back to the national team and, and, and it would be the norm. And I, I think that, so you have to really understand the culture and the angle that the players are arriving into the football. And I have to say, like, coming back and working at Rangers and having someone like um, Alfredo Morelos, if I hadn't had the Brazilian experience, I don't think I would have appreciated Alfredo for the person that he is lovely person that he is and the fantastic personality that he has um i think i'd be like the media which is very uh, uneducated on their opinion towards him and how they see him yeah. I, think I would see what i do see now which is a 23 year old that moved from colombia to finland that moved for, to helsinki from helsinki to rangers are very young and ended up in this cauldron and a style of football that was completely alien to where he come from and he survived and he's now excelling and he's He's, his personality and the way he sees the game and what the game gives him. I don't know if I hadn't had the experiences I've had in youth development and going to Brazil, whether I would have would have understood him. And therefore, that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, my sort of two beacons in coaching are Cruyff and Ancelotti. And Ancelotti says, you know, seek first to understand before being understood. And yeah. the one-to-one -one collaboration is the most important thing in football. When a coach makes statements like that, that's why I hold him in such high regard because that's what I believe. So I read them statements and wow, it's sort of it's it's not a light bulb moment because you're living it, but it's such a moment of of self worth. But it's reaffirming what you believe already. Yeah, and I think that's it. I think you know, for I, I speak to a lot of young coaches now, and they're getting it wrong. They can tell me like what they would do tactically, and they've got a lot of young coaches now in the in the YouTube generation, the Twitter generation that are they're analysts. They're not coaches. They believe their coaches. They believe that they, you know, that they can see what Guardiola sees and they can see what Mourinho sees. But they're analysts. When they speak to me, they don't talk about feeling and relationship. They only talk to me about X and O's and where people move. And then there's the other spectrum, which are coaches that are obsessed with practices. I was obsessed with practices for many years. Hence the amount of stuff I've put out in terms of practices. Um, and as I've got on, yes, the practices are important, you have, but that's a given for top players. They expect you to be able to coach and make the game um, nice every day on a daily basis, but it's still about the connection and relationship. And it starts with your staff because they've got to help you, but then into the player. So culture is massive for me, and it's the, it's, it's the big area at the moment that I'm still obsessed with. So... And I don't really have the answers completely for you, Kev. They're just, I just had some experiences there that I'm going through because that, that's it, how different people see the game. That's why I want to go and work abroad. I want to be respected as a British coach going to work outside, just like the idols of Venables and Bobby Robson. They were my icons. 
I've picked up a few others that I've mentioned along the way, but why was they my icons when I started? Well, no one valued British coaches, but Robson and Venables were trailblazing. And so they've always been, that's where you want to go. You want to be another Venables or Robson. You want to work outside yeah. the UK and you want people to respect you. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I think before we move on to another subject, just to, just to add my, my, my thoughts on that. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about respecting the culture. I, I, I came here and, if I'm honest, my, my natural reaction was to be a little bit critical about quite a few things. So the, the ice cream was everywhere over here for me um, in some respects, in terms of the habits, the attitude towards winning, um, the fact that results matter so much. But then I think as I've spent more time here and understood it a little bit better, I've realised that um, those perceived weaknesses can also be strengths and there's a reason why Spain is producing, still producing good footballers, um, is still, uh, it, it still has systems that produce, um, it's, they just produce things differently to the way that the UK does, that the way that the FA does for example and, um, and I'm, I'm still learning all the time and I, I probably should speak less and listen more if I'm brutally honest. Um, so yeah, that's, that's certainly was something I, I wanted to say but I, I, I find it fascinating um, to listen to your your experiences and um, I'm looking forward to hearing more of them uh, if one day you end up uh, packing your bags and, and moving uh, moving to another country so um, okay so just just to move on a, a little bit and, it, and it's, it's it's still a little bit on culture and and, and international stuff English football um, I don't want to I don't want to kind of use uh, keep using quotes that you've, you've made in the past um, to, to you know, to, the, I'm not holding them against you. What I'm what I'm trying to do is bring out um, how maybe you, you what, a little bit more about your thinking at that time and how that's developed since. And there's there's a, a few points that you made um, that I think are really interesting in comparison with with Brazil and, and England, and they reflected at the time not so well on England. And I'm interested to hear what you think at the moment. So um, you talked about Brazil having that their footballers have an obsession, there's a look in their eyes and a need. Um, that you don't necessarily get in in, in England, um, you you rarely see that, and or or if you did, once they've made their debut, that need disappears very quickly. Um, and you also made a point um, with uh, reference to um, the, the the academy system and the coaching culture, maybe maybe turning out clones in the UK, um, and and you know that might be a bearing on the uh, sorry a reflection on the English FA and the coach education system. I'm not sure, um, but. With those things in mind, how do you see English football now, um, and, and how do you reflect on, on those those kind of issues? Yeah, it's important that when you make a statement, it gets seen from different angles, doesn't it? So you don't, you don't always get. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to put. By the way, I'm not trying to no, put no, 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 overly critical or controversial. I thought they were really valid points. Um, yeah. This was a couple of years ago, I think. So no, no, I can answer. I can answer because I remember saying at the time that I felt that the best English young players, the ones that I'd worked with. And at the time, they hadn't really hit the scene. So like Trent Alexander, Harry Wilson, Ryan Kent, Tammy Abraham, Dom Solanke, Mason Mount, Fikaro Tomori, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, they could play in Brazil and they'd be deemed top, top players. And because yeah. they were Brazilian, they would be in a first team much quicker and be worth a lot more money. So the value of your passport was huge. Yeah. Now you're perceived as a young player. So I think a British young player has got to be absolutely, he's got to be Gerard, Rooney, Trent Alexander, Michael Owen. They've got to be the one in a million to be given the opportunity they're given, where if you're a Brazilian young player and you show talent, 
everyone gets so excited and jumps off with the buzz. And you might say in Europe now that sometimes French players have that and sometimes Spanish players have that. We don't really have that premium with our young players. We're starting to see it. I was a big advocate at the time if I wanted this. The one or two British players had gone to Holland and Bundesliga and I felt it was very, very <clears throat> exciting. And we're seeing it more and more now. That's the biggest thing to happen to British youth development in many a year, watching players like Sancho go across and and be yeah, respected sure. by Germans. I think it's, it's amazing. It's the most exciting thing. It's something that makes me so happy with our game and proud yeah. of the work that's done. In terms of the needs and wants, I 100% stand by that because of this. My parents live in Spain. They have done 14 years. I've been taking Spanish lessons since I worked at Chelsea. Uh, me and Joe Edwards, who's the first team coach at Chelsea now, Neil Bath, would allow us to do Spanish lessons once a week. And I wanted to learn Spanish. My parents spoke it. My sister spoke it. And I, and I was the one who needed it for my work. And I couldn't really make it stick because I wanted it and I didn't need it. So what the passion for it wasn't enough because it wasn't going to be the difference to me being a coach or not. Although I felt it was going to be a difference between me getting where I wanted to go. But I, I needed it. I didn't want it. When I went to Brazil, I had 17 hours of lessons of Portuguese before I went. And I needed to learn it. And I learned yeah. more in that 17 hours and probably eight, nine years of taking lessons of Spanish because I needed it. And I was going to fail, if not. And there's a difference between surviving and not surviving. And yeah. when I went to Brazil and I saw some of the young players, I saw that where they were from and their backgrounds, they really needed to be players. It was like an obsession. I need to be a player because if I don't become a player, the opportunities that life affords me are not the same. So I didn't make it as a professional football player. I thought I'm, I needed to be one. I actually wanted to be one because after that, I can go off and be a postman, a football coach, work in a school, work in a bank, whatever. There's a lot of options available to me as a young person. That's sure. not the same as the options available. So if it's difference between um, you know, necessity, you need to earn a living to feed your family, I think people find a way where the want is slightly different. And what I was trying to say is, before young players that I'd experienced working with and made first-team debuts, they had the same look in the eye. And then it was how long could you keep that look there? Yeah. And I still think Trent Alexander has the exact same look in his eye that um, he had the day he made his debut. Because when yeah. I listen to him talk, he talks a lot. We're so proud as people that worked with him at Liverpool because he talks a lot about how we would talk to another young player about getting to this amount of games and winning this thing and pushing to that and wanting to improve this. And, and it's like, wow, he's talking like a, a coach would talk to him. So I, he's very much driving his career with the guidance of experts like Alex Inglethorpe, Pepin, Linders, Neil Critchley, and obviously Jurgen Klopp, with these experts around him. He's driving it. Um, I don't, that doesn't necessarily mean that some of the players have fallen by the wayside didn't need to be a player. It's just sometimes levels come... But yeah. I feel, and, and I shared that experience with people in Brazil and said, you know, I really see this. And they said, yeah, Mick, but it goes once they've got money or their obsession is to get to Europe. So everyone might have a switch that where they gain things in life and all of a sudden their real need to keep going stops. But it was just a general thing that I'd seen. And then when I looked back at the English Academy system from outside, um, and I've been working in it for many years. I, 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 again, it comes down to creativity and it comes yeah. down to conviction of message and it comes down to, um, you know, the standards or are we willing to let players 
play with limitations or are we every single day? So I think if you've got a good young player, that should be the player you're obsessed with working with the most and should be asking the most questions of your best players. I think, you know, we, if someone's reaching, if someone's really fighting just to keep their head above water, of course you're helping them. They're at the back end of your group. But I think that, you know, you have to understand that as a coach that this boy is doing everything he can every day to be here. The boys at the top end of your group that are like the gold medalist, they're getting all the tension. You need to change that to a silver medalist mentality and you've got to get them boys out of this feeling like they've arrived and you've yeah. got to push and push and push and push and push because you don't know how long you've got to work with them. You know, there'd be someone like um, like Trent who I'll reference back to. You don't know how long you're going to have him as an 18s coach or a 23s coach. Like he made his debut at 17, 18. So yeah. jump. you think you've got the next two or three years of his scholarship and his first year of his professional contract to work with him. And then Jurgen Klopp thinks he's ready. So he gets pulled to the first team. How long he stays there will depend on the work that's been done beforehand on him, yeah. not just technically or on his game awareness or his personality or his athletics, on everything. And the, 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 you know, the more opportunities you get at the first team, yes, the more opportunities you've got to play. But you've also the more opportunities you've got of the club saying, no, we need someone better than him. So there's lots of different angles to look at. So I think that... As coaches, we need to we, we we need to remove the anchors and not allow limitations, and we need to take that on. So that I would I would use the word creativity around that, but that's what my definition of it is. I think also in England, we need to define winning. I would say to any coach around the world, I went to South America, and they're obsessed with winning. Everything they do is to win. They will do anything it takes to win within the rule. You've seen similar in Spain. For me, I would just say to any coach at any level, define winning, define it with your players. So if you're an under-10s coach, define what winning is for under-10s. And that might be that they're getting better every day and they're working, yeah. and they're improving themselves every day and they're improving on the style the club wants. And that's okay. winning. And the same way at first, define winning. Don't let winning be an ugly word. Define it. Yeah. Brilliant. I mean, so I was going to... I have what is success to you down here. Um, so I want to go on to, on to that. Some amazing stuff there, Mick. Really, really fantastic stuff. So, such a brilliant reflection, you know, on a really relevant, you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold is, is a player who is now known the world over and is only going to get better. I, I, I think everyone probably believes that. Um, and it's, it's amazing to hear the reflections on his journey a little bit on some of, some of the, the um, learning that you've had as a coach being part of that. Um, yeah, I want to. I want to ask you um, what, what is success to you. But before that, perhaps just to reflect back, you've worked lots of different age groups. You're now at first team level. I think I've, I've heard you say that you 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 probably need to work with an under 18s group at some stage. That's the kind of last piece in the puzzle, I guess. So what 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 happens after that? What what's what's Michael Beale's success? When I first started coaching, to be an, I wanted to be a manager. I wanted to be a manager by the time I was 40. It was like, and I wanted yeah. to be a manager abroad. So I had like these big things. But if you asked me at the time, what was the ultimate, what did I think I could achieve? It would be to be an under-18s coach. Because I remember when I was playing at Cholton and, and then when I first started coaching at Chelsea, it was like, wow, the under-18s job, that is the job. And it's the one I haven't yeah. done. I, I had a chance to maybe be one before I came here to Rangers. Um, and it's something I want to go back and do. I think 
it, it, it's just because of that, because when I first started, it was the obsession. I'd like to be ahead of youth one day. I don't know if I have the patience for it at the moment, and I don't feel I have the, I don't think I have this moment. I don't think my energy to want to be on the pitch as much would help me in my role as a youth developer in terms of an facilitator of the academy. So I think I have good ideas, but I just feel that you have to understand what that job entails. And it isn't, it isn't coaching every minute of the day. It's putting in the building blocks and the philosophy of the club. But yeah. like it's, it's fair to say that at this moment in time, I have a wonderful job working with a manager. So forget the player for a minute because he's not playing anymore. He's a manager. Um, and as a manager of people, I've met a lot and I've worked with a lot. And I've, in my time working alongside him, he's given me so much freedom. And with, with freedom becomes uh, responsibility, isn't it? So if someone gives you a lot of freedom, they're giving you a lot of responsibility. You can change the work. But he's given me both of that to able to work every day in a setting which before I came here, I had very small experience of doing in Brazil. Yeah. And it was a big opportunity for Stephen as a manager. So to give me the level of responsibility he has, there's, a, there's an element of trust there and that freedom that I get from it um, is amazing. But I'm not the only person like that. There's other members of staff who feel the same way as well. So that's really an elite way of managing. And then he's able to get out of players in a conversation uh, what I'm trying to get out of the players in the practices. So it meets hand in hand. So at this moment in time with a young family, what I've found is fantastic. Now, whether that works for a long period of time or a short period of time or only works for this job and next job, we don't know what's coming around the corner. One day I'd like to be a manager. But what I would say is at this moment in time, I don't have the urge to seek that out. Okay. You know I mean, I do have the urge to continually be involved in youth development. It doesn't impact on my job. I think it only aids my job. I have a real interest in young players in other clubs, young players that we might recruit who I feel that we can get more out of. You know, analysts can tell me loads about how many times a player keeps the ball and what he does, but my eyes tell me loads, but because also feel the power of relationships and what I can get out of a player and what Stephen could get out and Gary Mack could get out. So I have a real interest in watching youth football to see these next players coming along that you can work with. I have a real interest in how the game's coached and how to mentor young coaches with some of the experiences I had because I think I've had to learn by trial and error. So I think it's important that we can share. And I think there's a few coaches now, young British coaches, that are having really interesting experiences that come from youth development. And I would love them, all of us to keep sharing that because um, I think we are starting to get a bit of respect. So in terms of what's success for me, like um, I, I find like success in small areas, really, like the relationships of the journeys, journeys of players that do well. I think that as success because you. It's sort of like when I first started coaching, when coaches said, oh, I coached him, he's playing the first team, I thought, I'm never going to have one of them. So then when you have <laughs> a team that play him, it's amazing. You live yeah. their journey with them, which is, which is incredible. Um, yeah. Success is um, just markers. Like recently we played Porto twice, and for our Rangers team, where them players come from, what they're worth and how they're perceived outside of Rangers compared to the Porto players, there were successes in that, but there are different successes around organisation, the way that you can give players real clarity and a belief in your work. And then you can, you know, the, the, the level of value between the players can decrease 
and that's a sign of success of work. Um, I don't know. I want to. I want to be a manager outside of England. If you had to say to me now, right, Mick, cut all the bullshit. It's the longest answer in the world. What do you want to do? I would love to be an English coach working in Holland, in Germany, in Spain. I'd love to go back and work in Brazil again or Argentina because yeah. we want to change people's perceptions of the place where you're from. Yeah. That, that is a strong, strong cause for me um, in terms of British coaches. I think we, we get undersold. I see Brendan Rogers said something about it the other day. He spoke, I don't know if in his position he can speak as openly and passionately about the subject as I can, but I think that too many people turn their noses up at us and our players. And I think that's where we need to go in the next 20 years. And I would love to be one of the coaches that play a small part by going across to one of these countries and doing well. And people saying, wow, OK, that's where we need to go. So that's yeah. moment in time. I'm in a wonderful project with a management team in a fantastic club that I, I am giving my whole heart and soul to. And I can see myself doing that for a long time. But at some stage, I, I want to go and do them things for sure. Okay, so to, so just to summarise, if I may, it sounds like first of all you've got a few uh, itches that still need to be scratched. You've still got a lot of energy, a lot of desire to have a lot of contact time, less delegation mm -hmm. desire at the moment. But in time, obviously, um, you know, going into you know either first of all first team management or as you say head of youth or something like that, something a little bit more strategic you've got so much time to be able to do that stuff and your accumulated knowledge and experience is just only going to make that a stronger interview when, yeah. when you get there i suppose so um it, it sounds to me like you've got you've got so many options mate to be honest but um yeah but the opportunity right now yeah but like you know the next the next i work in first team football now so you judge very very quickly as a youth yeah. developer you, people can like your methods and, and obviously you're always judged on later something that's happening later on i'm judged now and something happens in the next two or three weeks but i do certainly feel that um uh, you know as young british coaches and young british players when i see people go abroad i'm so intrigued by their story because i think yeah go on go on you're selling us you're selling you know our beliefs on the game and you're showing a greater i i, I always said this like i i find my I, I find my job easy which is Probably the wrong term, easy, but I really enjoy my job and I love doing it. And I haven't reached a level yet where I'm scared by anything or... So I'm seeking that out a little bit, Kev, if that makes sense. I'm seeking a level out where I go, oh, wow, I'm in it here. Yeah. I never felt that even when I was in Brazil, I never felt uncomfortable. Okay. Uh, and I don't feel uncomfortable now. So therefore, you're on this journey to try and see where you can go with it. It's just yeah. you versus yourself. It's not for anybody else. It's you versus yourself. It's the same message with the players. Yeah. We, you know, when I left Liverpool to go to Brazil, I was pushing this you versus yourself with the players. And during them conversation with players, they would ask you, go, go on in, Mick, what's your aim then? Or you'd share it with them to try and get them to share theirs. So I shared this thing about wanting to go abroad. So what would the players have felt in me if I'd have turned down the opportunity to go to Brazil, having said that it was my dream to do it? Sure, brilliant. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? So yeah. there's little things that go on that, you know, and they're the extra mile. You talk about going the extra mile with players and the extra mile, that's it. It's this you versus yourself. And I would say to people, like, have bold ideas. You don't have to talk about them a lot. You don't have to, if you're a young coach or a young player, you don't have to throw your ideas out, but have bold ideas inside because it will give you direction. It will give you an identity. It will give you a reason to be putting the building block yeah. in place that you are. 
I think it's I think it's it's a similar reflection uh, as when you identify certain players who have personality. Okay, they can be technically very good, they can be physically very good, they can be tactically very good, but if they don't stand out because they're different, because they have the conviction in that difference, then for me, I don't notice them from a talent ID perspective. Um, and I, I think what you're saying is 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 really is something to reflect on for sure. Is how can coaches just be different? Don't swim against the tide. Don't you know, don't be the one swimming along with everyone else with you. You know, you, you referred before to um, the modern coaches. You know, the Twitter generation, um, but being you know dropping you know, cut and paste on their sessions, being so focused on sessions. It's, you've got to differentiate yourself and um, yeah, it's really, really interesting reflection. Just before we move on, Matt, I want to make the point about Raheem Sterling. Like, I didn't don't know Raheem very well. I spent a little bit of time around him when I was an assistant at the reserve team and he was played a few games for Alex Inglethorpe. And he always come across as a really lovely kid and anyone that I've spoke to about him said that he's a nice kid and he works hard. Now, I want to talk yeah. about the contrast between Raheem and the contrast of Jade and Sancho. From two similar areas, okay. Yep. Sancho's been rubber stamped by Dortmund. Been rubber stamped by Dortmund because they took him and they played him at a young age and the Germans are saying he's a good player. And I recently yep. got the Dortmund thing on Amazon and they rubber stamped him. I don't like, so I think that he gets, Jaden's a great player, by the way, and Raheem at this moment in time as an English player and what he's achieving under Guardiola is un unbelievable. But I just feel the way the two of them are perceived, and it's because he's, it's because I believe that Jaden's been rubber stamped outside, yeah, in some ways as a young player, and it's a given he should be in the England team. And Raheem gets there's a circus around Raheem that's so unfair, and it's not me protecting him; it's just what I see. I think Raheem, what he's given yeah. as a young player, everyone thought when Guardiola went to Man City that was the end of Raheem. He's now arguably the most important player. He's, the number and, and also what he stands for as a young person and what he's trying to promote in terms of the racism and how he's dealt with things, I think is fantastic. And look, this week he's had a bit of a blip with Gomez, but I think even then how he's come out and been very honest about his emotions is fine. And as, as a manager and as a, a coach of young people, I actually don't mind the spikiness. It's just how we channel it after. But you get my point in that if more English players go abroad and the foreigners... Yeah. We just accept it. So we'll accept arrogance in a young French player coming to play in England. But we won't accept it in an English player. Yeah, we we're the, the we're same, the same flamboyance in a British young player than we will in a young Brazilian who comes over. We'll say that the British player needs to round his game off more, or stop thinking in stars, or stop living in the world of unicorns. But we'll never say it about the Brazilian player or the Spanish player, and that's why we don't develop them. And yeah. I'm not talking about everyone. I'm just talking about, in general, why we don't develop them. We will look at a young player, and I'll give you a point in case, a player that I work with now, Ryan Kent, who's extremely talented, two-footed, can beat people on both sides. He needs a bit more direction in his game to add numbers, but what a talent. Yeah. As talented as anyone I worked with. But people around him have always said, oh, he dresses like this, and he don't talk very well, and he has jazzy haircuts, and you know, he lives in the world of unicorns because he believes in himself. If Ryan Kent was not uh, from Oldham and he was from Paris or somewhere else, he'd be completely different. And listen, yeah, 
And it's not me being all oh, the old English coach sticking. It's, it's not. It goes back to what I said to you about the best young players I worked with who are now so pleasingly from me getting there. See, last night you see Mason Mount and Tammy playing for England and Callum Hudson-Odoi and Trent. I am overjoyed that they're there. But before they were there, and I was saying they're as good as young Brazilian players, in my opinion, from what I've seen, people think you're barking mad. Yeah. But I don't believe I am. I believe that how we manage them players on their last step will determine whether they're perceived that later on. But ultimately, it comes back to, in terms of... Um logic it comes back to Ancelotti what you said before you've got to understand the player you can't you can't try and change the player and make them conform with something that we as a culture or the British people in general feel comfortable with you've got to understand them as a player and understand what makes them tick and that's, that's I think that's what you're describing right it starts under 10s Kev right so you have an under 10s team you work in academy you work on Sunday league wherever you work under 10s under 10s nine-year-old ten-year-old kids and you want the kid to go on the pitch and you want him to be physical the word aggression no but physical you want him to run around make tackles make contact not be scared of that you want him to be expressive so you want him to play with a smile on his face you want him to believe in himself and then you want him to walk off the white line and into normal life and be a mouse yeah and then they'll walk the water bottle and then you're the coach you're watching the game you're like don't kick the water bottle you're watching the game watch the game so you want this player to go on a pitch at a young age and be so expressive, yeah. believe in himself and show that healthy arrogance they believe in himself and then walk off the pitch and be a mouse, be seen yeah. but not heard. And it's like, wow, how does an under 10 know when to switch that on and off? Most of the players at the top end that we love, that we say we don't develop, are mavericks. We're not willing to allow a Frank Ribery. We're not willing to allow that type of player. We're not willing to allow a Royce like the Germans are. We're not willing to allow, as I say, look at what Raheem Sterling gets. And I don't think Raheem Sterling's a maverick. I think Raheem Sterling's a learner. And I think he wants to improve and get better because he's accepted what Guardiola's thrown at him and raised the stakes again. He's meeting the demands of the world's best coach. So yeah. I just think in England, like, how are we going to manage Sancho? Look at the stick that Rashford's getting. It's unbelievable for a 20-year-old. He's a fantastic player. We just don't know how to manage him in England via the media or via the fans. If he was French, if he was Brazilian, if he was, if he was in any of them kinds. So if you look at Gabriel Jesus, who I think is an outstanding young player, Brazilian player, and you look at Rashford, there's not much in the age, but the perception's huge in the media at this moment in time. Agreed. The pressure, the, pre the pressure on him to conform is so much greater, isn't it? So when I go back to that question about are we turning out clones, it's bigger than the statement I made. So I needed to elaborate like this. Yeah. We. That's why more of our players need to go abroad, because if a French French coach says that our player is good, or if Guardiola says Raheem Sterling's all right, every all of a sudden everyone goes, oh, he must be then. Yeah. What's wrong with what's in front of your own eyes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, the, the football establishment seems to value and desire that rubber stamp from another country that is, I don't know, I don't know why they would be better positioned to make the judgment. I don't know. That's the negative culture that we have in the way that we are. Yeah. I have to say, I'm coming to Scotland, it's even harsher. In Scotland, it's even harsher. And maybe that's why there are things that hold you back because you can't see progress or you're not willing to, to, to take a chance or to loosen up a little bit because mm -hmm. of the way that the culture is holding you in positions. The culture, I think, can sometimes hold you down. 
And in other ways, I think if the coach, uh, culture is more liberated, it can open expression for you. Yeah, I mean, you know, go back to it, you said how important it is to you and you use, let's say, the Northwest, Liverpool as a city. The culture there is something that you have an identity when you put on a Liverpool shirt. That goes. What goes with that responsibility is huge and you've got to channel that. But you've also got to disqualify any of the stuff that isn't going to help the journey. And I think that's, you know, it's a really good, good example. Okay, um, I'm conscious of time. Um, obviously, we could go on, you know, there's so, so much amazing stuff coming out here, Mick, I really appreciate it. Um, I love non-league football, you know this. Um, I, one thing I, I, I really want to understand a bit more is your experience in non-league football, how has that shaped you? Please, can you tell us a little bit more? Uh, it, it forced me into coaching much quicker, I have to say. Like going, <laughs> to non-league, going into the non-league setting, um, it was only supposed to be for a period of time to keep fit because I, I left Cholton, I went into non-league. Uh, I'd say I got duped into it a little bit. I'll come and play a few games for us, keep ticking over because I had some trials set up and I didn't want to waste the time between. And then it sort of stuck. And what yeah. stuck? It was the camaraderie, the dressing room, the relationships. And um, I had more comebacks than George Foreman. So I would retire and then come back and then retire and come back. And what brought you back was what? the relationships. What sort of clubs? What sort of clubs were you, were you at? I played for one club in Surrey called Banstead, and the guy who was the manager now is one of the FA national team co- uh, scouts for England. Um, yeah. The goalie in that team is now a coach um, at Millwall full time. There's a couple of players who have got sons that are playing professional football now. Eleven yeah. of that team. It's funny you asked me actually. Eleven of that team. We have a WhatsApp group and we still share ideas. And eleven of that team are coming up to watch the Hearts game on the 1st of December, which is good to catch up with them. And like a couple of them were Liverpool fans when I was there. And we have this, you know, and they come up to visit me there. So you you keep in touch with these people and the journeys, they they know me and know where I'm from. There's no way in life if you keep people close around you. I'm from a council state and I'm from, I'm someone who played non-league football after trying to make it as a young professional. You cannot change. You know, these are the experiences and these people around you they make you realise and they, they just, you, to them, you just Mike that played football with a few years ago. They know your foundation as a person. So it's, it's really important. Non-league football is, um, when I sat in the dressing room, some of the things that were said, some of the sayings um, from the managers and the assistant managers. So I played at Bansted, Croydon Athletic. I played at Ashford Town. Yep. So I played different clubs, uh, Red Heel. Uh, local clubs in, in the south of England and they were fantastic times. I didn't enjoy the journey, the travelling. I enjoyed the home games. I didn't enjoy the away games because some of the travelling you do as a non-league player ends up helping yeah. you. And, um, but no, it was a different type of love for the game. I think when I sat in a dressing room, I was working at Chelsea as a coach and then I was listening to some non-league sayings in the evening. So it was contradicting. Uh, and then, but it did fuel the way that I teach the game to young players. Because, again, non-league football, really, you're really dealing with people's limitations there. It comes back to what I say about senior football. Like, are you, are, are you sort of allowing people to be the worst version of themselves or the best version? And that's interesting. You know, in terms of what you ask people to do, oh, you can't do that. It's just getting to knock it down the line. <laughs> You're actually accepting the worst version of that person. And it, look, listen, as I say, like the camaraderie, like in any dressing room, um, we certainly weren't playing for money, we was playing for love of the game. 
Yeah. Some of the stories that I think, like, you can't, some of the things we got up to as a group of men uh, back then, you couldn't get away with in professional settings, for example. Yeah. You know, like the go on the Beanos and the away days and stuff like that and the drinks we'd have after the games and stuff. So that was really just, like, a wonderful moment. As I say, um, you know, some of them people are now school teachers. Some of them people have gone into different aspects of their life. Some of them have got boys that are playing professionally. As I say, the manager is now working for the English FA as a talent scout for the national team. So yeah. I was quite lucky. That group that I was in are all still involved in the game somewhat in some way. And I'm still sharing my, my journey with them. Brilliant. That's, that's wonderful to hear. Absolutely wonderful to hear. Um, okay, I've got, I've got one more question for you and then I'm going to draw it to a close. Um, it's it's around if you were given a first team job, let's say a first team job at um, let's say Man City, all right? Mm -hmm. Budget, complete creative license, an advantage over all of your opponents. Can you give me a couple of minutes on how you would go about that job? Um, you're, you're you're the king. It's your way or the highway um, and you have all the resources in the world to be able to work. How would you go about it? I think first you staff, you have to really get your staff in place and then you need to give your staff real clarity of role and uh, responsibility. So I believe a lot in, I study a lot the NFL, sort of the way that you have different coaches. Yeah. I would definitely go that route. I like, obviously, the goalkeeper coach always looks after the goalkeepers, but I'd like to have coaches for the different units, defenders, midfield, forwards. and okay. I, like, I like warm-ups to be different. I think you split up after warm-up and go off and do something that's very specific and then come back. I don't think that what I'm talking about there in terms of unit coaches, I don't think it's what happens on the pitch. I think it's the conversations off it. So for me, in terms of managing the staff, it would be managing the direction that we're going our aims and standards, but it would be managing individual relationships. And, you know, in a football club, you can be there six days a week and having two meals, like for breakfast and lunch or lunch and dinner. So that's 12 meals. You're probably looking after six or seven players. So you can see what I'm getting at here. Sit down yeah. have a conversation for five or 10 minutes on identity and why that player's playing and where he's going. Because I think at Man City, the toughest thing is not teaching the players to play football you've got the world's best players, so they're going to play good football. And certainly after Guardiola, a manager can go in like Mancini or Pellegrini before him and play a different way and be successful. I think it comes down to your relationships and the journey that you're on. And therefore, I think separating the players, if you've got the players as a group, stretch them out and hit each one in why they play. And then from them conversations, you'll learn a lot about the player and whether you feel that he can stay with you and where you want to go. You yeah. So the common core yeah. of the group must be self-improvement and where you're going. So for me, uh, there's no one-man band. You're not going to go in there and work. So I think that if you ever get to that stage of being offered a job, forget about what you're bringing and what we're bringing in terms of a staff. And if you're going in on your own, and you don't know the staff, the job, the level the job goes up, the difficulty goes up 80%. Um, so you've got to know... Sorry, just to stop you on that, because it's a point that I, I think is really important in the game. Do you think it's important to take people in with you, or do you think it's, it's better to adapt and, and, to, and, to, and to work with what you've got? Well, the reason I hold Ancelotti in such a high regard is because whenever he goes into a club, um, 
and he had some difficulties in Bayern, but all the other clubs, he went in, he worked in the culture of the club, and he left the club in a healthy place. Yeah. He left because he left of his own accord or he left. I felt that club could function. And there's one or two other managers, and I won't mention their names, I don't want to be too controversial. When they yeah. leave the club, they're yeah. in turmoil. When they leave the club, they never leave a club in a nice way. They leave the club in turmoil. And I'm talking about some one or two really big famous coaches here. They leave and all the players are arguing. And if you look back, and I mentioned one of the names quite as a being a fan of him in this interview, so I'm sort of giving it away. But he's in yeah. he leaves, it's in turmoil. So there's different. So Ancelotti, when he came into Chelsea, didn't bring a lot of people. I think he brought one. Um and I think it was the guy that was the head of the Milan Performance Lab when they were there, the big famous psychology lab that they had there, so or player performance lab. So he came in and he took Paul Clement under his wing and he, he took Ray Wilkins under his wing, who would have known. But I just think that you can't have a set team for every club. I don't think you can have a set team that you take everywhere with you because I just think that you're all going in and none of you know the scenario. For me, I'm a lot more open-minded in terms of what's in a club and what's needed when you go there. And I think maybe your first job, you, you want to take the right people around you because you want to implement something. But after that, I think you could have the, the right, because you might go into a club and you might want to take a fitness coach, but the fitness coach of the club you're going into is far better. And the relationships he already has with the players might be, might, he might not be better, but the relationships he has are stronger than the ones you're about to build. So you have to judge these on the time. But what I would say is, if you get that wrong, then you, your difficulty of the job goes up. And, and yeah. I think it's very much now a management team and you're, you're collaborating and selling ideas and it's the speed of how you can get around the group and how you can fuel the individual players. And what, what giving them clarity on their role within the team, their role in terms of the journey of where you're trying to take it, and also the honest conversations of why they might not be involved. And that gives a player an opportunity to prove you wrong, which I've experienced, or it gives a player an opportunity to move on with their journey in their life by moving clubs. I think people buy into um, honesty. A bit like I would say to a young coach, always treat the kids like they're yours. So every player you coach, treat him like he's your son, because... You, as a parent, when you become a parent, if you go to a school and on the parents' evening, you don't talk about the, the whole class, do you? You don't say, what's the class like at maths? What's the class like at English? You just want to yeah. know, for me, I want to know if Henry, what, what, what is Henry intrigued about? What is Henry good at? What does Henry need help with? What is, you know, and the same with my, my other son, Mason. And I think that's it. I think you can accept then some constructive feedback if you're honest does that make sense kev like so i think yeah, that, it, it, I it, it does it the young men that i work with now at first team level like they can accept honesty they want it they yeah. don't want bullshit so i think that you know clarity and stuff like that but have you noticed we spoke about it i haven't spoke about systems i haven't spoke about style i haven't spoke about practices i'm going to use they're all a given it's more about yeah. how we're going to live every day well, it's, it's consistent with with a couple of things you said. One, that um, connect, connecting with people is, uh, as you've, you've developed as a coach and you've gone through your career, you've realised that that is really the key to success and, and one that the most critical, the most critical thing to, to be, get really good at. And the second thing is that you're willing and open to challenge yourself and to feel uncomfortable because if you go in and you've got your four best mates around you, if you work, who you've worked with for six years or whatever to two different clubs 
okay, you, you, you can go in and, and everyone's drilled straight away and you can probably repeat and, and get a higher output of work in a short period of time, but you ain't going to grow and you're not going to feel, you're not going to feel uncomfortable. And it doesn't really reflect that well on, in my opinion, a manager going in and having that, that firewall around him. I'd rather he, he went and tried to try to close down the relationships or sorry, open up the relationships and, and break down barriers. And that, that's, consistent I think with some of the things that you've said throughout this conversation I think if you have a diverse playing group then I think you need to have a diverse staff no because you need to yeah. with that playing group again if you work in a region which has a very very strong bond and connection unless you really understand that and then people buy into you as a person straight away it would make sense to have someone from that region as well that's feeding and helping you and yeah, I, I, I just think you, you have a different staff for different clubs and, and yeah. sometimes you might have a trusted lieutenant that does a very particular job that you want. But in general, I think that you have to take each job for what it is. For example, if you're from the South and you hold coaching staff from the South and all of a sudden you move up to Scotland or you move somewhere else, do you take that same staff with you? Like in our staff at Rangers, obviously we have we have two or, two or three scousers, but we have Gary who's obviously had experience of leaving Scotland at 17 to go to Leicester, Leeds, Liverpool, but yeah. Scottish. And, and I'm, I'm the Cockney. I'm the resident Cockney from the other end of the, of the country. So my experiences are wired. So our coaching teams, and then we have people oh, yes. in the club. We have people in the club, and now we have a sporting director in Ross Wilson who's from, from Glasgow. So we have people, our staff's quite diverse, and, and maybe that's why um, we're doing okay at the moment. Nice, I like it. It's, it's good, uh, Mick. We we could have gone on for. I I honestly thought I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna be able to keep this to an hour and it, absolutely no chance. And we could have gone on for a lot longer. There's a, there's a lot more questions. If I'm brutally honest, that I would have loved to have asked you. But um, I've taken up enough of your time. Perhaps we do it again one day. And I think I just wanna I just wanna say you 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 come across and and and. My, my belief in what, what this would be, this, this conversation has just been reinforced. Um, you come across as a very humble guy and, and um, in an industry that hasn't got, hasn't always got the most, you know, the most humble people in it, and sometimes for good reason. Um, but uh, I would also say that I, I, I recognize in you someone who wants to help other people and help, help people, um, particularly young coaches and, and in the same way that you were you were um, helped it on, on your way up and you're doing the same for the people certainly doing the same for me in this conversation I don't know if you've noticed but I've got a little bit closer to the screen and um, as the as the conversation has gone on and that's simply because I'm, I've been enthralled by what we've discussed um, as I expected to be if I'm brutally honest um, so all I can say to you is thank you sincerely for your time um, I'm pretty sure everyone who watches and listens to this is going to be inspired by it and learn something from it um, and I, I wish you all the best no, I really appreciate it Kev we'll definitely come back on again mate and we'll, um, we'll elaborate further on some of the stuff as well mate top class top class alright Mick thanks so much pal top man mate all the best thank you